world. Borealis. Paradigm Expansion. Greetings from the North and welcome to part one of the forum today called The Rise of the Nazi Cult with historian Peter Lavanda. He is a real field researcher and one of the world's leading experts on the Nazi phenomenon. In the course of his 25 years of research, Lavanda has traveled to more than 40 countries gaining access to temples, prisons, military installations and government documents, interviewed historical persons, obtaining primary sources and making new discoveries. He has appeared in many documentaries on Nazism and the Third Reich. You'll find his complete bibliography and biography at our website together with the links to his. Among many different topics he's investigated is occultism, Nazism, as well as how they relate to each other. This is what we're going to discuss today, based upon three of his books on this fascinating subject. Welcome uh, to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yes, and it's very pleasure to have you. I have to say before we start that one of the things that is impressive on your authorship is that you're not just a run-of-the-mill armchair expert. You're actually a guy who goes out in the field and does something. Well, that's very kind of you. It's necessary, I think, to do that, especially in this day and age where... You know, uh, it's just too easy to go through the Internet and base an entire book on Wikipedia or something. So Yeah, yeah, recirculate uh, the mm -hmm. info. So just if any listener here is not aware of it, uh, Peter is famous for uh, retrieving primary source material. Another thing that impresses me, I don't know if anyone has mentioned this to you before, but you are an exception in that you're not jumping to the usual conspiracy conclusion. When you see synchronicities, when you see uh, coincidences, uh, quote-unquote, you do acknowledge them, but you keep an open mind. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that you do not necessarily think that it's some group of people who have total power over the world. <laughs> No, no, no. I think that's part of the problem of some um, journalism today. Uh, we have a difficulty, I think, in differentiating between what is investigative journalism and what is conspiracy theory. Now, conspiracy theory is used as a pejorative uh, to discredit people who are saying things you don't like, mm. uh, who are drawing your attention to things you'd rather not look at. So, I find the term conspiracy theory is problematic. I do write about conspiracies. I mean, they do exist mm. uh, in the United States. For instance, you can go to jail if you participate in a conspiracy, a conspiracy to commit murder, a conspiracy to commit a crime is on the books as a, as a legal definition. So it's not that conspiracies do not exist. They obviously exist. It's the extent to which we take the concept of conspiracy. Mm. And so, yes, you're 
entirely correct. I like to base my research on primary sources. I like to do my own investigation personally um, because I feel that gives me context for what I'm, I'm writing about, for what I'm researching. Mm. And I tend more to think of myself as an investigative um, author, you might say, an investigative historian, rather than uh, a conspiracy theorist. And uh, I'm not trying to denigrate other people who are conspiracy theorists, but they muddy the waters quite often. There are too many people who, who write about what they feel are conspiracies, which can be better explained in a different way. Mm. And we do have uh, alternative uh, models of explanation when there are dots that obviously have some correlation, but sure. correlation is not always causation, and that's, I think, where many uh, steer wrong. Yes, I, I agree, but the I, I would make one, one more clarification on that, and that is when I write about things like, for instance, in my trilogy, Sinister Forces, what I'm writing about is the fact that, yes, correlation is not causation, but the correlations are fascinating mm. in and of themselves. The correlations may point to a deeper web of connectivity between persons and events that don't necessarily imply conspiracy in the legal definition of the term, but maybe lead us to a different understanding of how reality works. Mm, mm, yes, this is actually a topic for his own show. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, uh, more philosophical and very interesting. But today we've invited you on to help enlighten us on another topic that you are an expert on, and that is the Nazi phenomenon. I usually refer to it as the Nazi cult. And you are one of the researchers who've been in the forefront of that definition. So I, I think a good start would be if you could explain to us why we should define it as a cult, and also, just in general, how you see that this current, this thought pattern emerged in the world back in the day. Sure. Um, well, yes, I've stated in Unholy Alliance and in, in many other places that the, the Nazi party is not a political party the way we understand it. Um, when it came to managing their economy, when it came to managing education, when it came to all the things that we expect politicians to be involved in, the Nazi party was a mess. Uh, it was a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, they didn't really focus on the things that uh, the politicians focus upon. What they focused on instead were grander issues. I mean, large, the large cosmological design of the world was something that uh, occupied their, their attention. The Nazi party began um, in the days immediately after the end of the First World War, when Germany was defeated, of course, and uh, defeated on many on many fronts, the um, the war against Russia, of course, fell apart. Uh, the Tsar uh, was overthrown by the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks then attempted to convince the Germans that they should overthrow their masters as well, workers of the world unite, and all of that. So there was a state of tremendous upheaval in Germany, and it was an upheaval that was, it was cultural, it was a spiritual upheaval, as well as a, a military, political, or economic upheaval. There was something that struck at the very core of what it meant to be a German, what it meant to be a member of this this country that had been so roundly defeated by so many different countries who came to destroy it, mm. uh, and then, of course, exacted tremendous penalties because of the war 
at the Versailles Peace Conference. Uh, so you had a situation where Germany was questioning itself, and it was questioning everything about itself. It questioned its own culture, it questioned its religion, it questioned its political situation. Germany was in danger of going uh, communist. You had uh, very strong socialist and communist parties in Munich, in Berlin, uh, in Kiel, everywhere. Mm. So you had this uh, the danger that the country would go communist. And out of this this cauldron of, of, of upheaval and chaos uh, arose two organizations that I focus upon in, in my work. The first, of course, was the Tula Gesellschaft. Um, the Tula Gesellschaft was an occult society. It was a secret society. And if you can imagine in the upheaval in the immediate post-war period in Munich that people would find the time to get together and discuss occultism, um, it's, it's astonishing, but there you go. And they met in the Four Seasons Hotel, and it was run by a man called Sabatendorf, Baron Sabatendorf. And he wrote a book later called Before Hitler Came, mm. which was about his role in uh, both the Thule Gesellschaft and in helping to formulate the ideology and policies of the, the Nazi party, which meant in the, met in the same hotel and which shared some of the same membership. Hitler, Hitler was sent to spy on the Nazi party, uh, the, the German Workers' Party, I should say. On behalf of who? On behalf of a cabal of uh, German officers who had, of course, lost the war, and they were now trying to see what they could do to hold the country together and root out any communist or socialist elements. So he worked for a Captain Meyer. Uh, Captain Meyer, ironically, later became arrested by Hitler and thrown into jail. Um, but that's another story. That, that's karma, I guess. That's karma, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Today, we live in a time where the collective uh, paradigm is very conformist. But back in uh, this day, it was street fights between ideological groups. And there was even occultists marching in the streets in Germany. And before the war and before the Nazis uh, killed off the competition... There was a lot of esoteric and uh, mystical uh, thought patterns in Germany. And you, you mentioned your book on Holy Alliance. Very good reading. We really recommend it. It's uh, in the line with books uh, such as uh, Nicholas Goodrick Clark's, who unfortunately has passed away now. And it focuses uh, on this aspect that we're dealing with now. Now, would you elaborate a little on these different sure. strains? So who else would you say was influential? Well, there's two names that always come up. They come up in uh, Dr. Goodrich Clark's books. Um, I'm also I'm quite sad that he passed away so before his time, so, so, mm. uh, so, so young. Uh, he and I collaborated. Uh, indirectly on a number of uh, documentaries and, and things of that nature. So it was a very great loss to me. But um, two names come up, uh, Guido von List and Lance von Liebenfels. Um, mm -hmm. These are two of the major uh, thinkers behind the growth of Nazi ideology. In fact, uh, Hans, Lance von Liebenfels was a direct connection to Adolf Hitler. Uh, von Liebenfels had an operation he called the Order of New Templars. Mm. Uh, he was Austrian. He was based in Austria, not far from Linz, where uh, Hitler was living at the time, where his mother died. And um, von Liebenfels had been a Catholic priest. He had studied uh, foreign languages, Oriental languages, as they called it in those days. He was an expert in that, uh, but somehow he ran afoul of the church, left it, and created his own mystical fraternity, the Order of the New Templars. 
there are photographs of von Liebenfels in a white tunic with a red cross emblazoned on it in the style of the Knights Templar. Mm. He had a magazine called Ostara. And this magazine contained articles on occultism, her esotericism of various kinds, but it was also very racially um, slanted. Uh, the magazine Ostara talked about the differences in spirituality between different races. And of course, the Aryan race was superior, uh, the Semitic race was inferior, and it contained cartoons uh, depicting uh, Jewish people in a very, you know, very blatantly racist way. Um, and, but with mixed in with a lot of occultism. He was based in Vienna at the time when Hitler himself was living uh, in an impoverished state in Vienna. He was applying to the, uh, to the art academy in Vienna. He was rejected uh, several times. Um, he was very disillusioned. This is before World War I had begun. And he was reading Ostara cover to cover in those days. And he went and visited Lanz von Liebenfels in his office in Vienna. Uh, to discuss with him some of the the, the issues, some of the uh, themes that uh, he was writing about in his magazine. And uh, von Liebenfels felt sorry for him, uh, gave him some money, some car fare home, and a few free copies of the magazine. Hmm. Um, he, he recounted that in his own autobiographical uh, uh, testament. So we have a young Adolf Hitler who is very moved by Wagner and Wagnerian opera on the one hand, by the Ring Cycle, which is very... Uh, very symbolic, heavily laden with, with symbolism, uh, with a Christian veneer, but really going back to a pagan idea of the grail and the ring and a sort of Tolkien-esque uh, kind of a, of a situation back in, in those days. Very moved by that and by mm. occult symbolism. But as I point out in Unholy Alliance, I don't see Adolf Hitler actually joining a cult uh, putting on a robe or something and, you know, chanting, you know, incantations to various gods. I think he was interested philosophically. He was interested in um, improving the mind and perhaps expanding mental capability. And he started to surround himself with people who claimed they could do just that, people like uh, Dietrich Eckhart, uh, the very famous poet and translator of Peer Gint, for instance. Dietrich Eckhart was a very famous uh, character around uh, Germany in the uh, the years just after World War I. Uh, he met Hitler at that time. Uh, he instructed Hitler in how he should talk, the kind of uh, people he should connect with. Eckhart introduced him to industrialists and other people because he saw in Hitler the possibility of a charismatic leader. Hang on. Did the connection between Hitler and the industrialist come via Eckhart? Eckhart was one of the major people, yes. Interesting. He had very good connections in society. Eckhart was well known in society where Hitler was not. Hitler was awkward. Mm. He was socially awkward. He had a difficult time uh, with uh, small talk. This was not Hitler's forte. Uh, Hitler <laughs> made speeches. He didn't actually hang out and talk. Uh, no. <laughs> and chat about the weather. This was not Hitler. This was not his personality from day one. You know, so no. this was not possible. Eckhart, however, was a very social animal. Eckhart was a drug addict as well. Uh, Eckhart mm. had a lot of uh, popularity because of his writing, his literature. His plays were being performed on stage in Germany. Uh, he was a popular guy, and he was the one who was able to introduce Hitler to a wide range of uh, industrialists and bankers, mm. uh, people who were admirers of Eckhart. It was through Eckhart for instance, that Hitler became in contact with Henry Ford in the United States. Uh -huh. And Henry Ford began to finance the Nazi party in the days even before the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923. 
So we're talking about financing Hitler from a very, very early time, and that was through Dietrich Eckhart. Mm. I believe Hitler uh, is on the record having said that he admires Henry Ford for his anti-Semitism, I guess. Yes. Well, he gave Henry Ford the highest possible award that Germany, Nazi Germany, would give to a foreigner. Henry Ford and Benito Mussolini in the same year won the same award hmm. uh, given by Hitler at the Brown House in Munich. So we're talking about um, a man who was considered one of the saviors of the Nazi party in the early days when they had no money, when they were trying to pull themselves together and create a political party. Uh, Henry Ford, financially at any rate, was one of the powers behind the Beer Hall Putsch. So mm. Hitler's attempt to take over the government was financed in part by people like Henry Ford. But you said that Hitler visited, uh, uh, I guess it was Liebensfels, Liebensfels before the First World War. Yes, is that right? That is correct. So when before he got militarized, so to speak, mm -hmm. by his war experience, when he was a failed artist, that's when he was flirting with these romantic and spiritual notions? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. He, In fact, poems of his have survived that he wrote in the trenches during World War I, mm -hmm. uh, poems to Wotan and Tor. He was writing pagan poetry. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, incredibly, you know. Yeah. And it was World War One, of course, which gave him the, the sort of spiritual revelation, you might say. He was blinded in a mustard gas attack in Belgium. Uh, he was recovering in a sanitarium. Uh, his sight came back. And when he learned of Germany's defeat in November of 1918, he temporarily went blind again. So it was a form of hysterical blindness. Wow. And it was that which gave him, which, which sort of solidified, as you might say, militarized him, where he mm. suddenly became um, almost vicious in his hatred of what he believed was the betrayal of Germany by other people. It could not have been the fault of the soldiers. It could not have been the fault of the generals. It had to be someone else's fault. And this was the beginning of, of his political awakening. And it was mixed in with this spirituality that he was drinking from the very fountain of people like Lanz von Liebenfels. And there was the other man I, I mentioned, Guido von Liszt. Uh, Guido von Liszt was a, another pagan uh, ideologue who was uh, mixing together uh, even Jewish Kabbalah with yoga, with uh, Nordic mythology and all of these things, trying to build all of this together into a kind of overarching mystical system, similar to what people like Lanz von Liebenfels were doing also, but in a much more grand and a much more sort of idiosyncratic way. Could we say that Hitler's quote-unquote spirituality was more concerned about these mythical uh, national romance uh, grandeur concepts and not so hands-on practical as joining a lodge, dressing up in funny clothes, invoking uh, <laughs> no, of pagan gods? Yes, I, mean, I assert that he never actually joined an occult order. I mean, I know there have been books mm. that have suggested that or speculated upon it, but that's to miss... Uh, Hitler's personality and miss what Hitler was all about. Um, Hitler fantasized uh, about this sort of thing, and the fantasy would always be much stronger than the reality. Uh, an occult secret society or a secret lodge or something like that uh, would never live up to what Hitler had in his mind as to what it should be like. Hitler's idea was racial and national 
You know, it was a religion that was founded upon the lost glories of the German race as he saw it. He, he felt that Germany had become mongrelized by the uh, influx of people from other countries, from Eastern Europe in particular, and of course by the Jews. But not only the Jews, the gypsies uh, and other people that he felt were polluting the spiritual perfection of the German race. So it was a very ideological position, but it was based on very occult and esoteric ideas. Uh, this A lot of this came from, I have to say, and people criticize me for saying it, but uh, a lot of this comes from Blavatsky. It comes from the Theosophical Society idea that she promoted uh, in her books that there are different races that have evolved differently in terms of spirituality. Mm. Uh, some of her early books uh, do uh, smack of anti-Semitism. She does complain about uh, Jewish people having lost uh, their their higher purpose, their higher mystical purpose. I've quoted this in, in Unholy Alliance and other places where she had a very dim view. She abandoned uh, studies of Kabbalah uh, and Western mysticism, hermeticism, esotericism very early on, uh, possibly because she felt it had been uh, polluted in a way by these other other trends. And she went straight to an, uh, an Asian uh, mythological structure where she uh, she deified Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and that sort of thing. She really wanted to go into that and abandon Western esotericism mm. for the most part. Uh, and this was something that uh, was very close to, to Hitler's concept as well. Yeah, um, I have to, to play the devil's lawyer here because uh, according to the theosophical teachings on race, which is racial, I grant you that, but she does claim that the new so-called root race will be a mix of all the consisting races, something which would be completely unheard of in the so-called race hygiene of the Nazis. So I think it's fair also to, to mention that there are great differences in their oh, yes. racial I have teachings. never said that the theosophists were Nazis, <laughs> that Blavatsky was a no. Nazi, but that the some of the philosophy that she had was easily adapted to the Nazi program. Yeah. The, the symbol for the Theosophical Society in the old days, the symbol that appeared on her books was the swastika, and that's going yeah. back to 1875 or so. So uh, I've seen, for instance, a copy of the incorporation papers for the the Aryan Theosophical Society in New York City, which was founded just a couple of years after the Theosophical Society by some mm -hmm. members, some colleagues of Blavatsky. And, of course, their symbol of the Aryan Theosophical Society was also the swastika. This is long before World War One. You, you think that's where they got it from? Well, she popularized it, absolutely. This was the symbol of of the race, of the Aryan race. This was what she was promoting. So um, mm. this was uh, embraced by people in Germany that I think, you know, at this time, at the, the late uh, 19th century when all this was happening, there was a tremendous upheaval in Christianity due to Darwinism and due to theories mm. of evolution. Um, so there were people who uh, saw in Blavatsky a way to have your cake and eat it too. Blavatsky was saying yes, you know, there is evolution, but it's also a spiritual evolution. And these ideas then become mixed. There's racial, you know, evolution, yeah. there's spiritual evolution. Oh, oh, oh and it dovetails yes. so uh, well with uh, Ebermensch of Nietzsche. Oh, yeah, sure. And with, with eugenics, right? With mm. the eugenics program, which was very popular in the United States. 
I mean, eugenics was a very popular science, if you want to call it that, in those days. Laws against uh, um, miscegenation, as they called it, laws against uh, for, laws forbidding marriage between white people and people of other races were on the books in many states in the United States, even as late as the 1970s. So you see that there was this idea that by mixing the races, you did something dangerous. You polluted the gene pool somehow. You created monsters if you had done this. And the Germans did not invent this on their own. You know, they, this was part of the zeitgeist, you might say, that everybody was talking about. Everybody was kind of thinking that this was true. And as you say, this thinking dovetails perfectly with the kind of spirituality, the sort of quasi-scientific uh, approach to spirituality that people like Blavatsky represented. Mm. When Theosophy was launched, it was a kind of, a, I would say, maybe a spiritual reformation, and a lot of Europeans were members of Theosophy, and it would be unavoidable that such a large movement also had uh, Nazi sympathizers. But then something happened in Europe. A lot of uh, people wanted to form their own groups, and the Nazis were no exceptions. And so all these groups you were mentioning, the New Templar Order, the Two-Legged mm -hmm. But could you uh, bring some more light to the anti-Semitism that Hitler was affected by in his environment and that he adopted so eagerly? Uh, where did that come from? And... Uh, uh, Hitler himself wasn't always an anti-Semite, as I understand it, because he had a Jewish friend in his um, uh, young age. So how do you see this becoming such a, uh, a main part of this ideology, this cult? Well, it seems um, counterintuitive uh, to think that Hitler had a Jewish friend and at the same time was anti-Semitic. But I, I would remind you about our own American president, Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon, one of his closest advisors, of course, as everyone knows, was Henry Kissinger, uh, a European Jew. And uh, you would think that on the basis of that, Nixon was not anti-Semitic. And then if you listen to the recently uh, declassified Oval Office tapes of Nixon talking about Jews, it's terrible. <laughs> it is, it is mm. the worst anti-Semitism you might hear. He, he, he distrusted anti-Semites in government, anti-Semites in the media and everything else. He was basically... You, you mean he distrusted Semites? And, yes, he distrusted Jews. Yeah. It was Jews. His, his focus was Jews. He used, mm. he used terms for Jews that I won't repeat. And he used uh, he 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 wanted to make sure that no Jews got into the White House, that no Jews were you know responsible. He wanted to ban Jewish media. He felt that maybe New York City should be invaded because it was so Jewish. I mean, all of these things are in the tapes. Yes, I'm not I'm not exaggerating. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I, I know it, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's crazy. So here is Hitler with a Jewish friend. That doesn't mean very much to me in the light of right. Nixon. Um, I mean, he gives an excellent example as to how you can have a Jewish friend and be very anti-Semitic. But I think that mm. a couple of things happened. Uh, number one, anti-Semitism was pretty much endemic uh, in, to the European population in those days. I mean, uh, Jews lived apart. They lived, uh, I mean, the Eastern European Jews in particular. Uh, German Jews sort of assimilated. It was a little different. But when you talked about uh, Eastern European Jews, they lived in what they called ghettos. They were living apart. The laws 
in Europe were such that they were forbidden uh, to be involved in uh, certain businesses. They were not allowed to live in certain areas. Of course, Russia and Eastern Europe were still going through pogroms where they were you know, massacring Jewish people in villages. So this was almost an accepted form of, of, uh, of racism in those days. So Hitler grew up in that environment, in a very Christian environment where Jews were considered to be Christ killers. Mm. And he went to a Catholic school. Uh, he went to, a, there's photographs of the school where he went when he attended in Austria when he was a, a young boy. And one of the, the designs on the coat of arms in that school was also a swastika. Mm. So we have this this constant subliminal kind of programming that's taking place. And then his mother, uh, his dear mother, whom he loved very dearly, uh, died uh, just around Christmas. And the doctor who treated her was Jewish. So we don't know if that contributed to, to this as well. But Hitler turned to be to become extremely anti-Christian as well as anti-Semitic. Yeah, that's less known, isn't it? It's less known, yes. And regarding how much the Catholic Church, and we'll get to that later in the program, but how much the Catholic Church have been in bed with Nazism. And like you say, in... Uh, the south of Germany, where Hitler grew up, there was uh, many of these people had Catholic backgrounds, not Protestant. Yes. So there is something there too, I guess, from the Catholic heritage. Certainly, I mean, the Catholicism in those days was openly anti-Semitic. There was no doubt about that. Hmm. Um, you can read even today some of the uh, speeches that were made by Catholic prelates in the 1930s before the war actually started, but as Hitler was coming to power, um, they're sort of apologies for anti-Semitism. Um, you know, they go into discussing, well, yes, maybe it's not, you know, Jews are, you know, God's creatures too, however, you know, mm. and they will go into, mm. you know, reasons why there really are, you know, subhuman. So this kind of thought mm. was there. It was not just in Germany. It was all over Europe. It was in England as well. I mean, it was a very strong anti-Semitic uh, uh, sentiment in, in Great Britain. There was, of course, in the Balkans very much. Um, so you had this kind of uh, overall anti-Semitism that was everywhere that Hitler basically um, tapped into as a source of national frustration and the need to find someone to blame for what had happened to, to Germany uh, during World War I, and particularly the Versailles Peace Conference, which was conceived in Hitler's idea as just basically a gathering of Jews to destroy Germany. Right, right. Okay, so he flirted with uh, these anti-Semitic movements because anti-Semitism is such a spiritual notion more than a physical one. Yes. I guess it's natural then that many of these occult uh, groups, uh, it was unavoidable then that you ended up with them because they would try to justify their anti-Semitism based upon their spiritual notions. Uh, philosophical notions more than you know any of course they used politics and uh, physical conditions as excuses too but when you go to the depths of their reasoning I guess we end up in this philosophical fringe zone of uh, Ariosophian mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned New Templar Order and the Tula they are both very well known but what about the so-called real society yeah, the difficulty I have with reports on the Frill Society is that there's very little documentation on it, if at all any. There are references to it by other people, but there's no definitive um, uh, paper trail 
for this society. Vril, of course, was based on a, a novel by Bulwer-Lytton uh, called Vril. An Englishman, even. An Englishman, yeah. Speaking about the coming race, the power of the coming race, which yeah. is something that, of course, appealed to, to German nationalists. The idea that there's a, there's a new race coming, which is going to be a race of supermen. Uh, and Vril was this power. Of course, it's based on the Sanskrit term uh, for vir, which is uh, the male power in general, uh, potency, you might say. Um, it's the source for many uh, European and other words and around the world. And, and uh, even I lived in Malaysia for a while, and you know, virya was... Uh, you know, it was a common term meaning manliness or manhood. So the idea of real is sort of this this male potency, um, and it was this, it was a subject of a novel. So I'm not 100% certain that a real real society actually existed per se because I've not oh. seen enough documentation to prove it. Okay. Tula, we know. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Real. Uh, it was brought up in a book by um, Trevor Ravenscroft called The Spear of Destiny. Yeah. The problem with that book is there's a lot of undocumented source material in there, mm-hmm. a lot that I don't 100% do not believe. I do not believe that Hitler was attending seances and taking peyote, for instance. I don't, I don't <laughs> see any of that as being true. Uh, uh, I, I wish. I think yeah. things would be different. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it would have been, yeah. Hitler as a hippie, can't you see that? <laughs> but then we have um, Paul and Berger, right, The uh, Morning of the Magicians, yeah. uh, which make kind of similar claims. So... Mm. You know, in absence of any documentation, I don't feel competent enough to talk about the real society, quite frankly. Okay, so it may be a meme. Uh, yes. All. Yeah. But the, uh, isn't the real concept also tied to the hollow earth, inner earth concept? Oh, sure. You know, and it goes back also to uh, to the, um, uh, what's his name? Just went right out of my head. War of the Worlds, um, the man who wrote right. the, the time yeah. machine, uh, uh, Wells. Yeah. Wells, Wells, yes. Yeah. yes. Wells also was thinking along the same idea. There was a hollow earth. There were people living underneath the earth. And of course, the hollow earth was uh, associated with, with Admiral uh, Byrd, uh, claiming that he had seen uh, an opening in the Arctic a circle that led to a land of lushness of green trees and all the rest of it. Yeah, but I'm getting to uh, how this was connected to the Nazi. Wasn't it a part of the Nazi mythos? Oh, the, sure. It was. The hollow earth was. The world ice theory was also one of those ideas that was embraced. But when we're talking about the Nazis in this context, I don't think Hitler per se was very much a part of this. This was Himmler. Right. Uh, and Himmler's hobby horse was occultism, esotericism, hermeticism, um, particularly in service to the state. Mm. So Himmler, as the head of the SS, financed many uh, strange operations and strange research institutes like the Annenerbe, um and other groups that went around searching for archaeological uh, artifacts, evidence that the Aryan race had been around the world, had conquered other countries outside of Europe. Um, he believed that there was, you know, that Tula may have been the, the underground civilization, uh, similar to Shambhala, the Tibetan idea of there being, you know, a hidden mysterious civilization below the earth or floating above the earth or in the ocean or, or something like that. So all of these ideas were swirling around Europe at the time, and a lot of people became fascinated by these by these concepts. Mm. You know, was there was there a civilization beneath the earth? Were we, for instance, actually uh, underneath another surface? Were the stars, according to one theory promoted by Himmler, were the stars that we saw in the sky actually pinpoints uh, breaks in a kind of surface material? 
you know, through which light was shining. Yes, yes, because for many people, uh, the hollow earth is, uh, you know, a, a huge lot to swallow in itself. But they had a reversed hollow earth theory, yes. didn't they? Yes, yes. We actually live in the hollow earth. Right. <laughs> And so one of the experiments that Himmler was trying to, to, he conceived of, was that since we are in a hollow earth, according to Himmler, we should be able to bounce a radar signal off of the surface and then find, you know, enemy uh, warships on the other side of the world Mm. because we could bounce a signal off of this supposed surface above us since we're inside another uh, sphere. We'll bounce the signal off of that sphere and detect warships in other parts of the world i mean he actually believed it to that extent that they ran these experiments huh but i guess uh, that he was in charge of ss was better for them because uh, there he could float his wild notions without any practical uh, i mean if he was a general with those notions <laughs> they oh, no, wouldn't get far <laughs> he wouldn't get far no of all these uh, nazi leaders then uh, you'd point to Himmler as more spiritual, uh, occult-inclined than Hitler, maybe more practical man, but who else do we have in the Nazi leadership who you would uh, define as are more philosophical-inclined? Well, Rudolf Hess, of course. Yes. Uh, Rudolf Hess was Hitler's number two man. He was the number two man in Germany, his right-hand man, up until his flight to England in May of 1940. But prior to that, Hess uh, was a man who had been born in Alexandria in Egypt, uh, he had uh, flirted with Freemasonry. He had studied occultism, astrology, uh, Asian religions, all of these things. He was very close to Karl Haushofer, uh, who was the man who uh, invented some of the geopolitical platforms that we still read about today. The idea of geopolitics uh, was something that Haushofer had contributed. Haushofer spent time in Asia. He was one of the people responsible for building an alliance between Germany and Japan at a time when Germany would have been better off building an alliance with China, according to the, the, the very strong pro-China lobby within the Nazi government. The Japanese side won, uh, largely due to Haushofer's influence. But Haushofer was also a firm believer in astrology, a firm believer, as I say, in Asian religions. Therefore, he was in this liminal space, sort of, between Europe and Asia, uh, where he would uh, pretty much accept almost anything. And he influenced Hess a great deal. Hess was arrested with Hitler, of course, in 1923, during the, the Beer Hall Putsch, the failed attempt to take over the government, he went to prison with with Hitler, and he helped Hitler to write Mein Kampf. Uh, so oh. Hess was a very, very major player where Adolf Hitler was concerned, and the flight to England was considered, at least officially, a great betrayal of Hitler and Hitler's trust. And that's when he had uh, the occultists and astrologers throughout Europe, uh, throughout at least the, the occupied areas, uh, arrested and thrown into prison. Because because up to that date, didn't he have an astrological consultor? Not exactly. He had people who were doing uh, astrological charts for Hitler. Uh, there was a very famous uh, woman astrologer who wrote uh, a prediction for Hitler, which was sent to him. Uh, in fact, today, I don't know if people know very much about uh, this particular kind of astrology. It's called Habsuman or Midpoint Astrology. It was uh, created by an Ebertine, a Dr. Uh, Ebertine, E-B-E-R-T-I-N. And uh, his wife actually wrote an astrological uh, chart for Hitler, not at his request, but just did it. Uh, because she was interested, and this was forwarded to Hitler, because it predicted that he would rise to become the savior of Germany. Mm. 
But uh, this isn't uh, Savitri Devi, is it? No, 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 no. Savitri Devi is a whole other story. Uh, Savitri Devi was not um, a major player in Nazi Germany at the time of the war, but she was a very strong player in the in the neo-Nazi movement, you might want to say, or the Odessa movement after the war. Oh, so she came later. She's, she's she came a bit war. later. I mean, she lived during that time, but mm. she uh, but she was crushed when uh, Germany was defeated. She lived in India at the time this was going on. Oh, uh, she, right. She uh, had adopted a lot of Indian culture. She was studying Indian religion, and at the same time formed a bridge between the Indian nationalist movement and, and Nazi Germany. She was one of those people who was uh, sort of a follower of Subhash Chandra Bose, who was a famous Indian nationalist leader who wound up in Berlin during the war because he saw in Hitler uh, the sign of an avatar uh, yeah. of the great Kalki who was going to usher in the end of the Kali Yuga, the end of the age that we're living in, uh, and wipe the earth clean of all the polluting factors and create a new, a new age. Uh, so she was sort of of that opinion. Uh, she was a follower of that type of theology, you might say. Mm. And after the war, she became very prominent in Nazi circles and in the underground. Mm. Since we're into female influences here, what about uh, Maria Orsic? Yeah, uh, there's been a bit about Maria Orsic lately. There, she's been the focus of some new studies uh, just in the last few years. Uh, Maria Orsic, yes, is one of those people who was uh, an influence but then you have others who might have been even closer. Um, mm-hmm. There was a woman who worked, um, and whose name escapes me at the moment, it may come back to me. She was involved with uh, a German secret society called the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. Right, right. Uh, which was initially a German organization founded by uh, a Theodore Royce and a Karl Kellner. Mm-hmm. Um, they were mystics. They were sort of Masonic, uh, a kind of quasi-Masonic organization. And... Uh, the people who belonged to that organization included men and women. Uh, when Aleister Crowley, the very famous English magician, uh, became involved with the OTO and essentially took it over, um, there were those within the Ordo Templi Orientis who felt that Hitler's message would be uh, embraced by Adolf Hitler. Mm. And they tried to form an alliance between Crowley uh, in England and, and Hitler in Germany. So there were, there were interfaith, there were in, uh, go-betweens. One of them was a woman in the OTO who was very taken with Crowley and at the same time very taken with Hitler, who was trying to form an alliance between the two. Yeah, I too uh, have forgotten her name, but I know of whom you speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, do we have any evidence that Hitler even knew who Crowley was? Well, it's tenuous at best. What we do know is that uh, Crowley's biographer, J.F.C. Fuller, a captain in the British Army, was a friend of Hitler, attended Hitler's 50th birthday party. He had written a biography of Crowley, which won him some kind of a prize or an award from Crowley. Hmm. And we know that uh, Fuller loved Crowley on the one hand, loved Hitler on the other, and uh, was a close confidant of Hitler. It's assumed that somehow Fuller managed to give uh, Hitler a copy of Crowley's scripture, the Book of the Law. Hmm. I know that the, the lady we were referring to in the OTO was also attempting or claimed that she had given a copy of the Book of the Law to, to Adolf Hitler. So this, this, this gestalt was there. I mean, there were, there were Crowleyan people who were thinking that maybe Hitler was uh, a kind of Crowleyan uh, high priest, in a sense, or, or, or kind of a messiah for a new age, which is how many people did refer to him. So uh, Hit, uh, Crowley himself, of course, had very mixed feelings. And, and on the one hand, he was sort of flattered 
uh, with the idea that maybe Hitler was reading him or was aware of him. <laughs> typical you know, Crowley. Typical Crowley. Yeah. But on the other hand, he eventually had to realize that, um, you know, this was probably not a good idea for England. Uh, except that there were, you know, he was he treated this humorously when um, the Blitz was taking place and bombs were raining all over London. Uh, Crowley had a relative he particularly disliked, and uh, tried to send a message to <laughs> to Hitler to give her the, to give him the exact address <laughs> so the next time the bombs dropped they would meet their target. <laughs> so there was there was a lot of this going on with Crowley. You can't take anything that seriously, you know. Um, no, and I get the vibe from him that he's more into chaos, uh, anarchy, and that uh, sure. when he took over, the part of OTO that he took over went in that direction. But, you know, who knows? It could have suited if Royce and Kellner lived on. Maybe it would have become uh, just another vehicle for the Nazis. Well, except that, yeah, well, if Hess had not flown to England, this might have been different. But Karl Germer... Uh, who eventually came to the United States after the war, a very high-ranking member of the OTO, was thrown in, in the concentration camps by the Nazis. Uh, the OTO right. was was uh, proscribed by, by the Nazis. I published that list in Unholy Alliance. All these various secret societies were put on a list of, of illegal societies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Freemasons, of course, being foremost among them. Uh, but the OTO was definitely on the list, along with a lot of other, other organizations of that nature. Um Rosicrucian societies, all that sort of thing. Yeah. All these people found themselves on, on the list of, of groups that you could not belong to. Uh, in fact, people don't perhaps know, but the very first job that Adolf Eichmann had uh, with the SS was being in charge of the uh, the Freemasonry Bureau mm. within the SS. He was in charge of a Masonic museum and also of collecting as much Masonic information as possible from the lodges that were confiscated. So he built up an archive of members. If you were a third-degree Mason, you were subject to immediate arrest and put, in, put into a camp. Mm. The first and second degrees, you would lose your, uh, you might lose your job, you might lose a lot of uh, benefits. But if you were a third-degree Mason, if you had attained the highest rank in, in regular Blue Lodge Masonry, you were then thrown into the camps. So uh, how much more so the OTO and other organizations like that, they were all arrested leaders of those organizations were arrested thrown in the camps along with Jehovah's Witnesses and a lot of other other organizations the Nazis felt were anti-nationalist. Yeah, uh, it seems to me very obvious that the Nazis being influenced by some of these, not saying that all of them then are <laughs> Nazi, but they took, they borrowed from different currents and when they came to power, would you subscribe to the notion that they then smacked down on them just to own history, to own that current, that philosophy, to kill off the competition, so to speak? Well, that is a point uh, that I make in the Holy Alliance, was that um, Hitler was the head of a cult, mm. um, one of the strongest cults the world has known in modern times. And he could not tolerate the existence of other cults within his cultus. So, you know, they had to go. They just had to go. They, you couldn't, he could not su support, you know, the existence of these, you know, contravailing uh, currents. Himmler, on the other hand, uh, felt, of course, exactly the same way. But Himmler uh, had the intention of taking as much as possible from these different um, societies, these different, these different mystical techniques, these different magical techniques, and seeing what was valuable that he could use within the SS. Mm. I visited uh, Wevelsberg Castle 
in uh, in near Paderborn in Germany mm. uh, for a TV thing that was done back in uh, the late in, I think it was 1998 1999. We did a uh, we did a documentary based there, and to be in that castle to see how Himmler had redecorated it. Uh, the swastikas on the floor, the swastika on the ceiling, the twelve niches for the, uh, the 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 twelve highest ranking members of the SS were like the, uh, you know, the round table knights of King Arthur. He was doing all of this very deliberately, and he was uh, taking uh, scriptural sources from everywhere and having his people write learned, uh, you know, treatises on them. Uh, I saw Ananerba literature, for instance with articles about uh, various Indian scriptures from, from India, Chinese scriptures from Hermetic uh, scriptures as well. His people were scouring the world for occult information. They just didn't want to deal with occult societies. Mm. But they wanted, they wanted the information so that they could use it themselves. Mm. In my esoteric studies, I've seen that before the war, Germany was the main capital of occultism, and after the war, I, I think it moved more to France because of the Nazis crushed so much. But before the war, there was actually groups with lineages that went far back. Um, I won't mention any now because it's beside the topic, but my question to you, since you're such an in-depth researcher on these things, would you say that any of these Nazi-style versions, like Tula, New Templar, the List Society, does any of them have any lineage, or were they just bad imitations? For my part, I believe they were bad imitations. I think they were copies of copies, basically. Um, there was some evidence to show that maybe Guido von List had some kind of a connection to the Golden Dawn Society of England, mm. and then the Golden Dawn Society of course, was based on a very famous uh, series of manuscripts called the Cipher Manuscripts, which uh, I wrote about in another, in another book called Stairway to Heaven. Um, I, I kind of believe, based on the information given by no less an authority than Gershom Sholem, the mm. famous authority in Kabbalah, sure. that, um, that there was a Golden Dawn Society in Germany that they got these Cipher Manuscripts from that this uh, organization existed there before the Golden Dawn was formed in England. Uh, Sholem points out that he knew where this building was, of uh, this Golden Dawn Society in England. In in Frankfurt, wasn't it? I believe it was in Frankfurt, yes. Yeah. Mm. It was a similar name to Golden Dawn, but a German version of it. Mm. And uh, it that organization had earlier ties to Rosicrucian societies, Rosicrucian-style societies of the 18th century. Uh, in in Germany, Austria, and in Eastern Europe, uh, maybe even connected to uh, the Sabbatean um, uh, heresy, you might say, a Jewish leader, a messianic leader who was trying to combine both uh, Christianity and Judaism in one religion. He claimed himself to be the Messiah of it. There were many kinds of occult societies that grew up around that. Was this Jakob Frank? No, Jakob Frank came just after. Oh, okay. Uh, Jakob Frank was the was the second. Um, Shabtai Tzvi was the first one who created Sabbateanism, uh, and then after him was Jakob Frank. Jakob Frank was the Aleister Crowley of his day. Uh, <laughs> well put. Well, he really, I mean, he believed in, you know, the, the, the open sexuality, the sexuality yeah. plus mysticism and occultism. Yeah. Uh, he had different wives, and he wanted to combine Christianity, Judaism, and Islam mm. all together as one, as one religion with him as the head of it. And a lot of uh, secret societies grew up around Jakob Frank and Frankism, uh, and I write about that in Stairway to Heaven. 
in Stairway to Heaven. That's yeah. a book people should take notice of then if they're interested in this esoteric uh, aspect that we're talking about. But was he the guy who came out of the Ottoman Empire? Uh, Frank or... No, the one before him. Shabtai Tzvi? Yeah. Yes, that was that was Ottoman Empire era. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he could have had something from the Constantinople lineage. The, oh, absolutely. There could be. I mean, there's the um, some of the Frankists actually still exist in Turkey. Uh, they're still they're still there. Mm. Um, they're still trying to uh, to promote this this concept very quietly, um, and many of them have converted to Islam. But it's kind of a surface uh, conversion because mm. they're still holding certain antinomian ideas. Um, but yeah, this there was a definite influx of thought from that part of the world into what uh, Shabtai Tzvi was doing. Um, and there may have included some Sufi material, some Dervish-type material as well. Mm. And I know that Gustav Meyrink actually had a lineage, not very well known. And that goes to the Eastern Europe, to old um, alchemical Rosicrucian currents. Back to the Nazis then. If we uh, look at these people, uh, you mentioned just briefly Sebottendorf. I guess we could elaborate more on him though. Uh, we have Liszt, we have Haushofer, we have Eckhart, we have Liebensfeld and uh, Orsic. Did any of these people, which are influential on the Nazi current, if not Hitler in itself, did any of them survive or live long enough to see what happened with the Nazi party the, and with Germany and uh, the war? Well, interestingly enough, um, Haushofer did not make it. He died shortly at the end of the war. Um, Sabatendorf also died. Uh, before he could, uh, he, he was well, he was on the list anyway because he knew Hitler before Hitler was Hitler. Uh, his books were confiscated and he was thrown in jail. I don't ah. believe he I don't believe he survived. So they turned like a Frankenstein monster. They turned oh, yes. on their own. Uh... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, continue. This is exciting. Yeah, no question about. It. They did turn on each other. Um, who did survive? Lance von Liebenfels survived, hmm. and he survived, I believe, in Switzerland. No. Uh, he continued to operate for a few years. I don't think he died until the 1960s, if I remember correctly. So he continued for, for quite some time uh, after the end of the war. But he was the only one that did. List was dead before this, um, before Hitler came to power, as I recall. Mm. Um, Otto Rahn, one of his, uh, you know, one of the famous SS uh, Indiana Jones types, um, <laughs> died, and, you know, of course, before the end of the war. He was yeah. the person sent by Himmler to find the Holy Grail. Um, the uh, the people who were involved in the Tibet expedition, another weird uh, <laughs> weird event uh, financed by Himmler and the SS, uh, most of them survived the war. Um, the the leader of the expedition was Ernst Schaefer. He went to Tibet, visited the Panchen Lama, took back a lot of documentation, took back the Kanjur, which is the Tibetan scriptures, uh, all 108 volumes of it, back to Germany. Is this the guy the film is based upon, Seven Years in Tibet? That, that's another one. We can get to him, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of these guys. Um, yeah, It's yeah. a whole rogues gallery. But in, in terms of uh, Schaefer and his group, they actually, in 1938, went to Tibet. It was a big deal. Uh-huh. Uh, I have clippings from the German newspapers of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in German, it says the first white men to visit Lhasa. Uh, which is not exactly true, but it seemed pretty pretty true at right, the time. Right. Um, they were there in 1938. The film footage still exists of the uh, the film that they made when they were there, 
Um, but these were people working for Himmler and for the Ananerba SS, the Ancestral Heritage Research Division of the SS, which was where all the occultists hung out. This was their, their bailiwick, you might say, uh, <laughs> to use a, an obscure term. But anyway, all of these uh, occultists were there. Ernst Schaefer was an anthropologist um, and an ethnographer, sort of. He was part of this. He was the leader of the expedition. I have his SS dossier. Uh, he had to get permission from Himmler to marry because they had to do a racial background on his potential wife, um, et cetera, et cetera. So he was a very dyed-in-the-wool Nazi. He survived the war. Uh, Bruno Beger, who was uh, the anthropologist with him on this mission, one of, uh, I think, four or five people altogether, Bruno Beger survived the war, even though he was responsible for war crimes. He had uh, personally overseen the murder of 80 inmates of a concentration camp because he wanted their skeletal material for a museum. And here's a man who went to Tibet, sat at the feet of the lamas. This is the thing that I have a very hard time understanding. He went to Tibet at the time when no one could go there. Mm. Uh, It was a very, you know, privileged position to be in. Saw, you know, he didn't see the Dalai Lama, who was only a child at this time, but he saw the Panchen Lama, the number two. He He was at Lhasa. He was, there were photographs taken in Lhasa, in this very supposedly very spiritual place, right? Mm-hmm. The way the Western media anyway has portrayed it. And with all of this effect, he comes back to Germany and commits mass murder. Hmm. You know? hmm. uh, he survives the war, does not go to prison for this, lives out the rest of his days. He died only a few years ago. Hmm. Uh, and he continued to write about his time in Tibet. He thought of it very fondly. He had photographs taken with the Dalai Lama uh, maybe 20 years ago or so. Uh, A very strange story. But as far as everyone else that we've talked about, I believe they all died right around the end of the war. Haushofer's son uh, was killed by the Gestapo. uh, I think it was in April of 1945, just at the end. I think Karl Haushofer, yes, Karl Haushofer and his wife both committed suicide in the Japanese fashion, seppuku, Mm. uh, at the end of the war. Sabatendorf died. Uh, Guido von Liss was already dead. I think the only one who really did survive out of that whole group would have been Lance von Liebenfels. Did any of them, or he then, if he was the only one, turn away from, take uh, space between him and Nazism? Mm, Lance von Liebenfels did not. Mm. No, there was not a lot of light between him and the Nazi party, even after the war. Um, He was kind of proud of uh, maybe the influence he had had over Hitler at the time. He made certain, you know, uh, general pronouncements that were politically correct about how terrible everything was, but he continued to operate uh, and to 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 promulgate his theories about spirituality and race and occultism and all the rest of it. He was sort of unregenerate, and I think that uh, I've met in my lifetime uh, here and there people who had been Nazis during the war, who, in my estimation, still were. Mm. And their reaction was pretty much the same. They, uh, they understood that you know people looked down upon them as being vile, but at the same time they were not apologetic about it, and in some cases almost uh, angrily defensive about what they had done during the war. So I think Lance von Liebenfels sort of fit into the same mold. Hmm. I guess uh, once a true believer, always a true believer. Well, that's the point of all of my books on the Nazis. We we must understand that these were true believers. This was a cult. Mm. Losing the war in uh, in World War II in May of 1945, it was a defeat for Germany, the country. It was a defeat for the Wehrmacht, the German army. 
Mm. But the SS and the Nazis themselves did not consider it a defeat. It was just an obstacle. They just simply moved their theater of operations to the Middle East, to South America, to Asia, to different places, but and to North America. But they did not they did not accept defeat. They were true believers, yeah. uh, and they believed that they would survive. Their message would survive, and they uh, they spoke openly about this. People like Otto Skorzeny, Hans Ulrich Rudel, all of these people who survived the war became you know known as true believers. They wanted Nazism to survive. And uh, they lay the foundation of a very bad heritage of which we will get into more in part two. I think this is a good point for a break. And when we get back in part two, I'll have some more in-depth questions for you considering some of the stuff we talked about. And uh, we'll go even deeper into some other stuff that we have on the agenda. Okay. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. <laughs> 